welcome to Beyond Blathers, the podcast where we dive deeper into the insects, fish, and fossils you can find in Animal Crossing New Horizons. I'm Sophia Osborne. And I'm Olivia DeBercier. And if you want to support the show, please check out our merch store at beyondblathers.square.site and take a look at the animal stickers and postcards we have for sale. We're so excited to be joined today by Miria Perez, aka Paleontologica, on Instagram and YouTube for this week's episode on the Plesiosaurus. So thank you so much for coming to talk to us, Miria. Hi, I'm so happy to share and talk with you guys about one of my favorite extinct animals. Miria, do you want to tell us a little bit about what your work looks like and, and what you do? Yeah, sure. So I am called a fossil preparator and my job is to actually spend time with the fossils themselves. So I spend my time cleaning away what's called the matrix or the rock that's around the fossil and trying to find a way to get that off and also keep our fossils, I guess, in good health, as you might say, making sure that they don't fall apart when they're in collections or on display. And part of my duty also is to kind of show volunteers how to do this too. So it's fun. You get kind of like a leadership role and it's science and art. And of course, fossils, sometimes dinosaurs. I started out actually some of the fossils that I'm most familiar with prepping were marine reptiles. And so I'm so excited to share with you one of the fossils. I guess I haven't worked with Plesiosaurus specifically, but I've worked on a type of Plesiosaur from Angola. Very exciting. And where are you coming to us from today? I work in Dallas, Texas. So I'm here. Howdy. (laughs) (laughs) Working on fossils in the museum here. Yeah, great. Well, I'm really excited to talk to you more about your work and, of course, the plesiosaur. But first, we have to check in with Blathers. We always see what Blathers has to say about the animal that we're doing each week. So if you bring a plesiosaurus fossil to Blathers... He'll say, ah yes, the plesiosaurus is a classic of the ancient reptile world. That long, graceful neck, the wee little head, and the plump, turtle-like body make for a striking silhouette. Incidentally, despite the saurus name, it wasn't actually a dinosaur. Common error, a what? (laughs) But they were surely a majestic sight swimming in those ancient seas like a long-necked rubber ducky. Aww, I love that. (laughs) I'm interested, Miria. I always like, I'm interested to hear the reactions of our guests to Blather's description. How would you review his description of the plesiosaurus? It's pretty, it's pretty good. I'm sad that one of the cutest parts about it, the rubber ducky is incorrect because it, I guess, I don't know. I'm, I'm picturing the ducky's like little head kind of curved. And so like picturing the plesiosaurus neck curve, which wouldn't happen, but Everything else sounds pretty good. Um, Plesiosaurus was one of the first, like, kind of ancient fossils that people were discovering, like, before dinosaurs were discovered and named, really. So it's definitely one of the ancient classics. So definitely give them a good rating for that. And then also, it's funny that he says it has, like, a body of a turtle. And that was something that plesiosaurus was kind of talked about it looks like a snake threaded through a turtle and it kind of (laughs) does i see that and something like i wanted to share with you guys about plesiosaurus is that it's only one species and it was thought that there were multiple species within the genus of plesiosaurus but there's just one 
and it's known from Lyme Regis, where Mary Anning found uh, this plesiosaurus. And it's actually one of my tattoos. Ah, that's so pretty. (laughs) (laughs) But um, I guess I can share with you also about plesiosaurs, because there's so many different kinds when you branch out in that group of animals. They get really diverse. There's two kind of morphs or shapes of plesiosaurs, which are super cool. And they're just very diverse and interesting animals that just dominated the seas and the Triassic through, especially the Jurassic. And then they even lived into the Cretaceous and then they went extinct completely at the end of the dinosaurs. That's so cool. I wanted to ask for those who might not know who Mary Anning is, could you tell us a little bit about, yeah, who she was and and what did she do and why is she so important? Yeah, Mary Anning, she was, she's known as kind of the mother of paleontology, one of the first paleontologists, female paleontologists, definitely. And she started out at 12 years old collecting fossils like ammonites and, and ichthyosaurs and plesiosaurs down in Lyme Regis in southern England and selling them. Her family was very poor. And so she would sell fossils and draw them and go out and she really knew the rocks and really knew the cliffs and she made so many cool discoveries plesiosaurus being one of the biggest and then of course ichthyosaurus too awesome yeah i love Anning. i love hearing about the work she did and especially at a time where like women were not allowed to do quite a lot so (laughs) i think she's a really important figure to talk about Yeah, she's just now getting recognition. She wasn't allowed to join the Geologic Society of London and scientists from all over would come over and see her work and see her fossils. And sadly, she was not given credit for her findings at the time. Mm -hmm. I also wanted to clarify. So you said that Plesiosaurus, there's one species. So right now, there's only one species within that genus of Plesiosaurus. And it's kind of tricky because Plesiosaurus was named kind of in reference to Ichthyosaurus. So Ichthyosaurus were named first. Ichthyosaurus was named fish lizard. And then Plesiosaurus were named closer to lizard. That's what Plesiosaurus means. And that name just kind of got, I guess, stuck with the kind of group of animals. And so sometimes it's colloquially, I don't know if that's the right word, like used in ways of describing animals that are plesiosaur, um, I guess plesiosauri is like the bigger term for a bigger group. And then like that one genus, and then of course the species. We might find more species of plesiosaurus, hopefully. And something that I'm like, I, I found out too, is there's a really famous plesiosaur, kind of its big head, it was called plesiosaurus macrocephalus. And I think it's still called that. But we think it's a baby Romeolosaurus. It's another kind of plesiosaur that's not the, ge- the genus plesiosaurus. It's a, it's a smaller baby version of another kind of plesiosaur. Super cool. And so I guess to sort of summarize it, just make sure I've got it. So there's a whole bunch of animals that kind of have a similar look to plesiosaurus, and we call those plesiosaurus. But there is also just a specific species that it's called plesiosaurus. Yes, you try to use just saying plesiosaur when you're talking about something that's related in that same group. And then plesiosaurus is that genus. 
makes a little more sense. <laughs> I think, yeah, I think that makes sense. Okay. It's hard to remember. I'll try and keep that in mind when we're talking about them today. <laughs> so for the plesiosaurus, could you tell us more about, yeah, like what, what did they look like? What was their habitat like? Yeah, so plesiosaurus is about seven feet long. So it's a little smaller than some of its other relatives. But it's got four identical flippers, which is a key characteristic for plesiosaurs. And it's pretty weird, to be honest. Most aquatic animals have different front flippers than their back flippers for steering and other purposes. But for plesiosaurs, they have almost four just copy and paste flippers about the same size and shape. So it's got this very, very long neck. And plesiosaurus is in kind of, we, we have two casual groupings of plesiosaurs. We have the short-necked plesiosaurs, which are like nicknamed pliosaur morphs, so like they have a certain shape. And then we have the plesiosaur morphs, which is what plesiosaurus kind of fits. They have the longer neck and they have a smaller head. If you think like Loch Ness Monster, that's the kind of body shape. And then for pliosaur morphs, they have kind of a, almost a mosasaur build, like very, very large head and definitely apex predator and short, shorter neck. Like a crocodilian? Yeah, kind of has like a crocodile like skull. I mean, these things got huge. The pliosaur morphs, that kind of body type got really, really big. And if you've seen Charlie the Unicorn on YouTube, they talk about, oh, it's a magical Liopleurodon. A Liopleurodon is kind of that body shape, is that biosaur body shape. I, I've never thought about how they have those, yeah, those flippers that look all the same. Like if you think of seals, like harbor seals, they have like the little flippers in the front and those are for steering. And then their back flippers are for kind of pushing them through the I was going to say through the air. That's not right. <laughs> through the water. <laughs> um, <laughs> flying harbor seals. So yeah, that's really interesting. And wh- why Why was that? Why did they have those paddle-like symmetrical, I guess, flippers? Yeah, like why? Like what kind of swimming were, there, were they doing? There's, that's so debated right now. There's a couple of studies that have happened where they determined they swim more like penguins. And then there was a study done where they, I believe they 3D printed flippers, like the plesiosaur, and then they had water in there and they put food dye to watch and they tried a bunch of different movements with those flippers to see which one was the most like efficient in the water. And so they looked at it and that study determined that they were pretty synch- like synchronized. They were almost in harmony in that study. Kind of like a canoe. Like if you've got four people in, or two people in a canoe and you're trying to like paddle forward. Yeah, they're such weird animals. <laughs> we have nothing like them today. They're completely, all of their group is extinct, which is interesting because they were such a diverse group. There were so many kinds of plesiosaurs. There's I think hundreds of species of plesiosaurs and they just totally rocked the ocean all over the world. They're found everywhere from Antarctica, which there's some cool stuff happening there with plesiosaurs, to New Zealand, France, Germany, Canada, and the United States. Wow, so all over the place. And when did they first start to sort of emerge in the fossil record? So plesiosauria originated and diversified in the late Triassic, and all of its friends from the superorder of Sauropterygia 
meaning lizard flippers, which is just really cute. They all died in the Triassic extinction. There was an extinction at the end of the Triassic. So each of those geologic times marks a big extinction event. And another cool thing is plesiosaurs actually outlasted ichthyosaurs. So those little dolphin animals, dolphin-like animals, were really popular in the Triassic. They have so many different diverse forms in the Triassic and into the Jurassic, and they went extinct at the Jurassic Cretaceous extinction event. And so we see these plesiosaurs rise and empower, I guess, and start to really take off because we have a lot of movement, tectonic movement, ocean levels are rising. These animals are going out to the open ocean and just totally rocking it out there. And <laughs> they've got all these different kinds of forms and shapes and they are all predators. They all are eating other animals. We have things like our long-necked plesiosaurs eating squid and fish and then we have the larger kind of more apex biosaur morph types of plesiosaurs eating each other we have evidence of them eating other plesiosaurs and just kind of they actually seem like a lot like a mosasaur or a killer whale in a sense that they're just eating everything how do you know that they're eating each other do they find like fossils with i guess little bones inside of their stomachs or, or how would they know that so you can tell by bite marks and oh. identifying bite marks which is really cool because you can line up you know the size of the bite mark and you have you know so many big animals out there during that time which line up with what kinds of plesiosaurs are roaming around like swimming around in there that's so cool. So they, they'll find a bone and go, oh, look at these interesting like scrapes and everything on these bones. And then they can match them up. All yes. CSI style. <laughs> Actually, that's so true. I know for not, not so much for the plesiosaurs, but for the Permian period where I've done some, some digging and some fossil prep, there are dimetrodons with, with chew marks. And you're like, well, other dimetrodons were probably the biggest they're the biggest thing out there during this time. So they were eating each other. Wow. And sometimes you even find the shed tooth embedded or it looks like embedded into the other fossil. Oh, that is so cool. Wow. I was wondering about the neck because I know you sort of alluded to that Blathers was maybe incorrect about like, you know, them being like a rubber duck and kind of being upright like that. Could you talk more about their neck? Because I feel like that's such an iconic part of them that people associate with them yeah all the like old paleo art show them with like squiggly necks and <laughs> it's kind of funny they wouldn't be able to do that they probably wouldn't be able to lift their head up like that because their vertebrae are pretty locked in and they're more they're gonna have their head pretty horizontal for all the time if they tried to bring it back it would probably break their neck and it also doesn't lend well for going on the beach so Plesiosaurs were probably not going out and having a tan. <laughs> <laughs> they're, they're fully aquatic reptiles, so they're breathing air, just like sea turtles, and they have to surface, but they're just so well adapted to their environment. And they're, oh, another like fun thing, like a cool fact is that they were probably ovoviviparous, which means that they give live birth. And this happens in some reptiles today, but we have evidence of plesiosaurs with embryos inside. 
and there there's just a single baby in there and that also kind of shows us maybe some behavior like whales so a lot of animals will either have lots of babies at one time or they'll have one or two offspring at a time and the ones the animals that are doing just few infants or few offspring are taking care of them so they're making sure that they're eating and staying with their herd or pod or whatever their group is called. And so this might indicate that plesiosaurs were somewhat social or cared for their young because only animals that do that are like whales and elephants and things like that that have their infants close. That is so cool. I, and I love how you can sort of make these comparisons over millions of years and organisms are still sort of doing similar things to survive. And, you know, they might look a little bit like turtles, snakes or whatever, sea turtles, snakes in the water. But, you know, not like sea turtles are not just laying their eggs on a beach and taking off. They're one not able to go on a beach, which I guess is interesting because, yeah, I mean, I can't imagine something with that long of a neck trying to fit on a little beach. Like, <laughs> it would just be so yeah. inconvenient. It would be a little tricky for sure. <laughs> yeah, the neck thing, like having a straight neck is so interesting too because I think so many people sort of associate them with like, yeah, like the Loch Ness Monster or something, but they couldn't have that S-shaped neck and we don't have anything like that that just like has a super long neck and is just kind of... Like, <laughs> just swimming around like, a, like an arrow or something. I love those illustrations of like sea monsters where like they've got the long neck but they've like wrapped it around like some sort of like anaconda in the water <laughs> or just like squeezing <laughs> a whale to death or something. <laughs> those are very dramatic illustrations. And, uh... Yeah and a few thing like theories about why they have this absurdly long neck is that, you know, maybe they're sneaking up on a group of fish or squid and they have this small head and the big body is kind of hiding away a little bit. And so you're able to kind of sneak in there like a spy <laughs> and come through and eat, eat the fish and squid. There's also a theory about them maybe using that long neck to kind of reach in crevices and reefs to get their food. And then also we have sauropods, which are the long neck group of dinosaurs that have that kind of feature too. They have small heads and very, very long necks. And it's thought that they kind of use that to their advantage to graze. So they move their head around and kind of graze a very large surface area. And plesiosaurs might have been doing that for, for their food and using their neck that way too, where they could just kind of hover a little bit and look for food and hunt. We're not sure. When we were doing the Brachiosaurus episode, a big part of what I was reading was that, you know, maybe this was just to conserve energy. Like you don't have to like, it's like if you're sitting watching TV and you want to reach for the remote and it's so much energy to go and reach for the remote. But if you had a really long arm, you don't have to work as hard <laughs> to get the remote. So that's what I think of it as. But I think it's so cool though, as someone who is a big whale nerd, that's probably why I'm so drawn to like big prehistoric underwater animals as well. But it is interesting how much of a parallel there is there since obviously like whales are mammals, but you've still got like a lot of sort of similar behaviors and like the way that they probably raised their young and everything. It's pretty crazy. Like these animals were just as like adaptive and I guess creative and evolution was creative in a way. And they're super built to what they need to do, just like modern animals are like 
people might think, oh, dinosaurs are primitive or plesiosaurs are primitive because they're older and they didn't survive. But these animals were very equipped to handling their environment. So speaking of which, why are there any ideas as to why the plesiosaur didn't make it past that big, that big extinction event at the end? It's tricky. They were actually in a little bit of a decline in the Cretaceous period. And that is when the rise of mosasaurs started to come up. And there's tons of mosasaurs during the Cretaceous period fighting for that kind of role, that niche or niche. So these animals were starting to become less diverse because they were being outcompeted from things like mosasaurs. And then during the big extinction event, there are so many different theories about how everything went extinct. Some animals were already in decline by then, but unfortunately we don't have them today. <laughs> I wish that was not the case, but... Yeah, that would be a pretty cool thing to get to see on whale watching trips is plesiosaurs. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, I saw that you guys like to talk about dinosaur or fossil drama. Yes. And... <laughs> <laughs> There's definitely a story with the kind of plesiosaur, well, plesiosaurus, but elasmosaurus, or ribbon lizard, was found and discovered by somebody who took it to this big name paleontologist, Edward Cope. And if you know anything about Cope, you probably know something about the Bone Wars, which is a huge feud between two paleontologists, Cope and Marsh who fought over excavating fossils and doing paleontological research, and it turned out to be super, super nasty. We're talking bribes and explosives and, you know, naming things that aren't a species and destroying each other's fossils, and it's pretty nasty, but entertaining, I guess. <laughs> but so this elasmosaurus was brought to Cope, and Cope, he decided to put this fossil together. So he put the skull actually on the wrong end because this neck is huge. It's very long. <laughs> and he puts the skull on the end because he's using this reference and he brings his buddy Marsh over to come check it out. And Marsh points it out like, hey, you got the skull on the wrong spot. And Cope just, I think he claims that that was the moment where they decided to hate each other because... <laughs> <laughs> This is the straw that broke the camel's back. They were just like, nah, no. For good. real though. <laughs> Cope also tried to like blame it on his reference that, you know, he put the skull on wrong because his reference had it wrong in, in other spots for other animals. But it's pretty rough. And I know that Cope and Marsh had have tried to name new plesiosaurs during their time, but they've now been kind of disqualified as being valid. <laughs> So in this kind of rage that these two have for each other, they, they made a lot of mistakes. And to this day, there are some naming and fossils that are still being worked on and, and fixed, really, because of, <laughs> because of a, messy, a messy feud. This happened sort of around like the turn into the 1900s, right? This happened, let me, let me double check, late 19th century. Okay, yeah. And as someone who works in like museums now and fossil preparing now, is there still like, it seems to me like I'm so outside of this, but just from hearing from Olivia on some of these episodes, it seems like there's still a lot of paleontology drama. <laughs> <laughs> yes, there's always drama. I, I guess with any sort of anything, there's drama. People don't get along with others, but 
Yeah, in paleo, there are some very big egos, especially like Bone Wars, where you have people that are just so involved in their work and and trying to prove the other person wrong. And (laughs) people get very, get very like attached to their theories and and opinions too. And, And sometimes it gets in the way of science, which is a little unfortunate because you know, as scientists, our our job is to try to, you know, figure out the truth. And sometimes people get really excited about, like, their opinion or, you know, try to find evidence to prove, prove it right. And, yeah, cherry pick the evidence. But it happens. I'm sure it happens with other forms of research, too. But, yes, there's a lot of drama. <laughs> <laughs> it's hard, too, when you're trying to put all these puzzle pieces together from millions of years ago when... It's so hard to know what the truth is and you can argue, argue over some very like big things about how these animals lived. And sometimes we will never know the answer because behavior is not a thing that really fossilizes. We can kind of make a good guess, kind of like, you know, plesiosaurs being social animals and taking care of their young. And that's just, you know, the best we can do comparing it with modern animals and, mm-hmm. and how it works now. Was there anything else, any other fun facts you wanted to share about plesiosaurs? (laughs) Yeah, I guess, yeah, plesiosaurs, I'm talking about the bigger kind of group. There's a lot. There's a couple of really cool specimens. There's Mauriciosaurus, which I hope I'm saying correctly. It's a, from Mexico, and it's from the Cretaceous period. And we have skin preserved on it. We've got a stubby tail, which is something that we didn't, you know, I don't think we expected, but it's got kind of this triangular, there's a lot of kind of fat or skin or, you know, some sort of soft tissue preserved around kind of the base of the tail. And then it kind of just forms into a little stub, which is kind of cool because you you don't really think about them having stubby tails, but it's really cool. That's super neat. And what does the skin look like? Is it sort of bumpy? Is it more like scales on a fish or smooth? I think it's pretty smooth. And you want to have smoother kind of skin for aquatic living. So like dolphins and whales, they have very little hair. They do have hair, but it's very little to be streamlined in the water. And they've got, I think, pretty smooth and fine skin, but I'd have to double check and look at it. That's a really cool fossil, too. It's got like kind of a stockier neck compared to like the long one I think of when I think of a plesiosaur, but its face is almost... It almost looks like a shorebird, like it's got kind of a bigger head, but still a very long snout. Yeah, it's really cool. And I know I talked a little bit earlier about kind of those morphs or shapes. It was part of the classification at first, but now it's kind of not really true because we do have things that are part of that kind of plesiosaur morph or pliosaur morph that kind of overlap in the body forms, like you have a pliosaur that looks more like a plesiosaur. And so that kind of throws out that kind of grouping. So we just call them morphs because it's the shape, kind of the shape. And it does, you know, it does show you a little bit about what that animal's doing and what the, and you can infer a little bit about the behavior or what kind of food this animal is eating based on the body. And you said that you've worked with some plesiosaurs, like not the plesiosaurus, but yeah, I have. So the, the plesiosaur that I was able to work on is called Cardiocorax, and it's from Angola. It's part of an exhibit right now called Sea Monsters on Earth. 
at the Smithsonian National Museum of Natural History. And that one is, we've got real pieces of the paddle. We only have the paddle, but we have real pieces of the paddle. And then the rest of them are actually 3D printed. And so I did a little bit of prep with that. And then I also got what I love to do about fossil prep is you get to do art too. You get to paint them. And so uh, one of my jobs was to paint the 3D pieces to match the original fossil. And so that was super fun because I love doing stuff like that. So did you have to do the sort of 3D design part on the computer as well? Or were you sort of provided with these specimens to sort of, you know, pretty up? Yeah, how the 3D printing works. So the 3D printing was part of my team. So my mentors were working on the 3D printing part of that. And also they created the mount for it as well, which was really, really cool. So they did all of the metal, the metal work and... I did the painting for the fossil and also a little bit of cleaning for the the little paddle flipper pieces. Also, we got to do some of the turtles because we had other other creatures that we needed to reconstruct and paint. So that's another part about fossil prep is you get to do some art. That's so nice. It's very it sounds very sculptural. Like you have to really look at what exists out there in nature. and... And bones are weird, too, because depending on where they fossilize, depending on what they're fossilized with, they can be different colors. So you can have darker fossils, dark brown, red fossils, or even opalized fossils. There's a plesiosaur that is opalized and it's so pretty. It's kind of a purple and then you get kind of rainbow colors there in the vertebrae. That That sounds beautiful. so cool. (laughs) So it's like a gemstone, like an animal that's turned into a gem. I love it when things opalize because it's just so pretty. I want that to happen to me, like, <laughs> one of my bones. <laughs> one day. Fossilization goals. Yeah. Fossilization goals. I'm going to put that in my will. Or like in my- <laughs> I need to be opalized. <laughs> well, Miria, we'd love to hear more about how you got into fossil preparation and paleontology and everything sure so I started out a lot of people in fossil prep start out this way too but I was a volunteer at my local science museum the Houston Museum of Natural Science and I started there when I was 12 I was so eager I really have always loved dinosaurs and fossils and plesiosaurs so I asked the curators there when there was an event and somehow they let me volunteer. So I started learning how to prep fossils and go on excavations. And then later I went to school for paleontology. So I got my degrees as close as I could get to paleontology, got them in geology and anthropology while I was working on stuff like the sea monsters on earth exhibit. So I was working on cardiocorax, lots and lots and lots of mosasaur fossils, turtles, and even a crocodile from around Texas. So I did a lot of prep and then I started working in Dallas and right now I'm working on some Permian fossils and some dinosaurs from Northern Alaska. Very cool. What, what dinosaurs from Northern Alaska are you working on? Uh, right now we've got lots and lots of bones from an animal called Pachyrhinosaurus perorum and it's this big ceratopsians like relative of Triceratops but it's got instead of those three horns it has this really weird we call it a nasal boss and it's a, it would have been really thick skin on top of their like kind of face area. 
So maybe for butting heads or fighting or display. And it's really so cool because the fossil itself has all these little grooves, all these like little nooks and crannies. And it's so much fun to prep. Like I love prepping the nasal paws. <laughs> that is so cool. I, I love hearing about the the high latitude dinosaurs because right now I'm in the Yukon. And so I've been taking like a paleontology class here and like learning about what existed here <laughs> like way, way long ago. It's kind of amazing to think of like these large reptilian creatures being able to survive in a climate like this because I mean obviously back then it was probably milder but even so it's kind of amazing to think that there were dinosaurs up here and they find stuff in Alaska and they find tracks and yeah that's so true it's it was still cold there during like the Cretaceous period and these animals were probably staying there all year round and not migrating so they were dealing with the darkness mm -hmm. and the cold and they could probably self-regulate their temperature to some extent we think yeah they would have had to in the winter if you know there's so little light here that they couldn't have just survived on sun alone for sure <laughs> we have dinosaurs like troodon animals and they have they typically have large very large eye sockets for possibly seeing in the dark and living in that kind of area super cool oh <laughs> love that and maria you've started a youtube channel now right yeah i just started a youtube channel also paleontologica talking about kind of just how to become a paleontologist what does it mean? What do we do? What kinds of jobs are there? And then a couple of, you know, kind of common questions like what do we do when a fossil breaks? And how does it how do we come up with exhibit ideas and mount things? That's awesome. <laughs> and I was gonna ask, like, how did you sort of start in the SciComm world? Like, was that something you always enjoyed doing? Or was there sort of a moment that sparked that? Yes. Oh, my gosh. So I I've been in, uh, I have been what's called an if-then ambassador, which is 125 chosen women in STEM from all different careers. And our mission is to inspire young girls, especially middle school age, to stick out STEM and follow their passion in the science and maths. So as part of that, I've been doing so many really cool opportunities. And that's part of the reason why I'm starting this channel is we got to pick a couple of things and projects to promote this mission of ours. And one of them was the, the YouTube channel I just started. But we've been able to do, re, you know, reach out to classrooms and share what our job is about, encourage people to follow STEM. I've done a podcast here, I've done a couple podcasts to try to encourage women in STEM. And I think, I think it's working. I'm really, really happy to see comments from kids or parents saying, hey, like we listened or heard your podcast or video and our kid loves dinosaurs i'm so happy to hear it. like it's very hard it's very hard to stick out stem sometimes myself i wanted to drop out when i was in college there were a couple of moments but thankfully i had a lot of support from friends and families and mentors and i'm really glad to have stuck it out <laughs> yeah it's it's some it's hard sometimes and it, it makes a big difference to see people that I don't know, look like you or have had similar experiences doing the career you want to do. Like, I think when I think about it, the most influential 
mentors and professors I've had have been people who either have similar interests or, yeah, are also women and in senior positions in academia and stuff, it's all so important. And it really does make a difference when you see that the, the feeling you get is, is way different. It's very inspiring. Thank you. I'm just, I'm honestly like really glad to have all of these opportunities because I'm now finally able to pay back. I've had so much help and encouragement from all these people. And now I'm finally able to share kind of my story and what what worked for me, what didn't work for me for others. And hopefully it'll be easier for somebody to pursue this path. And I wanted to ask too, has there been a moment working in paleontology that was like, the best moment ever. Like you were just like, this is, <laughs> this is why I do what I do. Like, so I think one of the coolest, gosh, there's been so many, I've had so many really, really cool things happen and I'm so grateful for it. There was the opportunity to study with Dr. Q Barensmeyer at the Smithsonian National Museum of Natural History, not only to study with her for an internship for the summer, but the project there was to study the taphonomy or the, the burial, the death and burial process of ichthyosaurs from Lyme Regis where Mary Anning was. So we got to study her fossils. And that was just such a cool summer. We actually went to England and looked at those specimens and looked at the specimens at the museum. It was incredible. I learned so much. I learned what research was all about because really before then I didn't quite understand what research, research took. And so it was very, I learned, I learned so much. And to be able to learn from Dr. Berensmeyer was just a once in a lifetime kind of opportunity. That does sound like an amazing opportunity. Like how cool. Ichthyosaurs are just, I mean, I think there's something so charismatic about them inherently. And then also to get to look at Mary Anning specimens would be just thrilling. It was like meeting a celebrity. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> celebrity fossils. Ah, it was so cool. <laughs> You're just like over there fangirling as the curators are like unlocking the, the glass and everything for the exhibits and stuff. You're just, it was so much fun. I feel like we always like to ask, you know, people who are kind of more experts in this field and like you've worked in museums and what do you think of the way that Animal Crossing has brought in <laughs> fossils and the museum in in New Horizons and everything. So I'm not going to lie. I, I never really got to play Animal Crossing as a kid. My friends would play it. And I for some reason, I don't know why I didn't like go for it. But now I've got the one for the Switch. And when I saw like all the fossils and how up to date like some of them are. like At the time, Spinosaurus, they had like the correct, like the newest kind of form for it I was so excited I'm like I'm gonna get Animal Crossing like almost solely for the fossil (laughs) (laughs) but I love it I really think they did like an awesome job like I love how it's chronological and the museum's like fun to be in when you're in Animal Crossing especially like in the insect and fish stuff there's so much to see I'm working on like making my house kind of Mary Anning theme. So I got like an ichthyosaur, a plesiosaur, and an ammonite kind of in the front. That's so cute. <laughs> but the museum is so is really fun and honestly like when I got when I got the game last year, like late summer, I was a little late to the game. Literally. <laughs> <laughs> It was hard to get a Switch. I also, yeah, I got it around the same time and I remember like they were all sold out. So I had to get like 
the cheapest one I could find. I don't know what was harder, finding a vaccine or finding a switch. To be <laughs> <honest>. <laughs> oh my gosh, just Good COVID point. things. <laughs> but it really, it, it was really nice because like virtually I was able to visit a museum again. And that was so cool. I don't know. I, I was working from home a lot and... Like on the weekends, I'd play it and like, oh, I'm like back in a museum. Yeah. <laughs> was there anything else you wanted to talk about, Miria? Um, there's a really cool, uh, like, historical piece of art called Duria Antiquor. I'm probably saying that wrong. Duria Antiquor. And it's by kind of a friend of Mary Anning's. And it was kind of the first, like, paleo art. And it depicts ichthyosaurs and, and plesiosaurs. Um, pterosaurs and, and crocs and turtles all found in Lyme Regis and it was one of the first like official paleo art pieces because it showed the whole environment not just the animal but the whole environment of the animals that were in organisms that were living during that time so the artist actually was selling it to help Mary Anning because she was so poor and help fund her wow that's so nice I'll have to google that photo Wow, that's so beautiful. Oh, I love that. So to kind of describe this to people who are listening, it feels kind of like a pencil drawing with maybe watercolor. And it's got the below sea image of like all these ichthyosaur looking things and plesiosaur looking things swimming around and eating fish and eating each other. And then (laughs) they have like the above ground (laughs) scene with some pterosaurs flying around and some classical like islands it's very magical and kind of surreal I really love this it's really cool and when they were making copies like they had to like draw it again and paint it again because there's no copier so they're (laughs) some of them might look a little bit different depending on what you find Ooh, in the Lyme Regis Museum there's like a modern version. So like they did, they had an artist do a modern version where everything is scientifically accurate, but the same kind of, it looks like the same art, but everything's accurate. And they <laughs> add, I think, dinosaur that, that was found in that area or found in that kind of geologic area. That is so cool. I guess also, w- were there any other places or things you wanted to promote or we talked about your U- YouTube channel, but were there any like, episodes for cbs is unstoppable unstoppable is that yeah that people can access <laughs> if they're interested sure i have like all my links i just got a link tree and so that's all on my instagram so i have an instagram with the podcast the youtube channel and then also um i have twitter but i don't normally use twitter <laughs> yeah my youtube i'm hoping my youtube will do really well because i like that's our like my main project with if then right now and so I really hope it takes off. I know it's like a niche little field, but hopefully it'll encourage somebody. Yeah, thank you so much. <laughs> Great. Well, thank you so much. And thanks everyone for listening. Please leave us a rating and review. We'd really really appreciate it and don't forget to subscribe. And as we said before, make sure to check out Paleontologica on YouTube and Instagram. Tune in next week to learn more about the insects, fish, and fossils you can find in Animal Crossing New Horizons. Bye! Bye!